0: welcome to a special edition of the learn with All show today we're excited to welcome matilda Dochi an expert in the field of food law alternative proteins matilda has been instrumental in helping startups navigate the complex legal landscape of the food industry with a focus on emerging alternative protein space now food law may sound boring but it impacts our lives there used to be a time where people used to sell snake oil or things that were called orange juice and it was not or shoes, and, and Snigel didn't do anything for you. So we talk about the emerging alternative protein space, the legal challenges, the hurdles, EU food law versus other countries. This is a, actually a really fascinating episode. If you're interested in this type of thing, if you're interested in discovering something that you didn't even know was fascinating, then please subscribe. we put putting out new episodes every week. So let's stay curious. Learn about Matilda, the alternative protein space. In this episode, learn with all Show. What is the what is unique about the EU regulatory landscape uh, when it comes to like food tech that you found? And, and your time being in that space?
1: So the EU has the strictest food system in the world. And the nice thing about the EU is that like once you get approval uh, in one country, so your product will be commercialized in the 26 other member states. So in total, it's 27. You just need to re- redo the, the labels because we have 24 official languages in the EU. And then you have also a system. Uh, the food system in Europe is built in a way that uh, it's harmonized. So you, you just have to ask the um, approval to the European Commission and then the member state have to follow what the European Commission said. Um, And apart from this, it's also free movement of goods. So you don't have um customs uh, duties, uh, taxes and so on. Uh, and overall, the system is... Uh, functioning pretty well and when you have also sometimes um food safety uh, crisis everything is tackled very fast because you have a system in place that uh, might be more difficult to manage in other places uh, of the world um even sometime in the us because i know sometimes that the um, uh, federal authorities they are not responsible and it's up to the states to uh, manage this whole situation. And I think sometimes when you have a lack of um, cooperation, or the, um, uh, the split of, um, uh, of task or com- uh, competencies that are not clear, uh, it can hinder uh, the the speed, um, like how fast the problem can be tackled.
0: Mm-hmm. The how, how does the landscape change at all as like some members choose to leave? I know there's like I think there's like Britain's kind of leaving and I think France is leaving. So then do they they maintain that regulation so that it's easier for people to keep moving or do they have to like restate? Like, how does that work? Is there any like weirdness with that?
1: Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, France is not leaving the EU <laughs> for <laughs> now. But uh, Britain, uh, Great Britain did uh, with Brexit. And the thing is, uh, when a member state decides to leave the EU, he, uh, the member state has two uh, choices. Either they keep the same uh, regulations in place and they decide later on to uh, update them or to um, rewrite them in a way that is more suitable for their needs. Or in the case of uh, Brexit, uh, Great Britain, they didn't plan. Um, um, they didn't plan rules uh, applicable to the topic, like uh, for food, transportation, and so on. So they had to figure out uh, as soon as they left. So this is what uh, it's happening. Uh, for food tech, uh, at the moment, they have the same rules uh, in place uh, than the rest of the EU member states, but they are planning to change it. But it's also a problem because now it's not harmonized. And I feel like British companies, they may suffer from these changes because they know know what is going to happen. And if it's too different, they won't have um, also clarity in terms of whether or not they need to change their production process and so on to have them approved in other um, countries because the British market is a small one in comparison to the EU.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that... Um... Do you feel that the regulatory hurdles with, you know, people leave, maybe may not necessarily people leaving or staying, but just in the EU, do you think it's the right level uh, for food or do you think it's like too hard?
1: Um, I feel that from the outside, it can appear, appear to be a little bit too harsh, but I mm-hmm. disagree with that because the level of safety is very high uh, in the sense that uh, crises uh, they don't happen uh, that often in comparison to other places. Uh, and the um, attitudes, uh, I mean, it's very different from the U.S. Like in the U.S., the motto is more uh, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Uh, whereas in, uh, in Europe, it's more paternalistic system where you have to ask permission before doing anything. Um, and just uh, once again, the fact that it's a harmonized system, you have to have strict rules in place, just to um, signal to companies that they have to follow the centralized system. Otherwise, uh, and in that case, don't have a lot of room for maneuver to do otherwise in other uh, places. Like, for instance, um, with regard to sell meats in the EU, you have several. Um, states that are really in favor of this, where, whereas some others, they are a bit reluctant to accept uh, such changes. So the the Netherlands will be very happy to have cell uh, meats be put on the market very fast, uh, but it's not going to happen because the final say is up to the European Commission. Mm. So it really depends, but I believe that more safety is better, but I also understand from a commercial point of view it's frustrating and you see Some companies uh, fleeing to the US because the system is more uh, welcome, is more welcoming uh, towards innovation, and they see that um, their uh, R and D is uh, compensated faster because they will be able to sell it sooner.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense, and um, so sometimes uh, I've heard. Well, there's one example I've heard where people specifically pick the EU market. As a for the labeling, like hey, we got it in the EU, uh, we can use it in America. as like hey, they're so hard, it, it'll sell here. I'm specifically thinking of like Theranos. They wanted like Germany to get their labeling on their testing as a way mm-hmm. to be like hey, look, Germany likes us. Don't you guys want to like approve us for the military? um Do do people do that in food tech at all? Like use the EU's labeling, like hey, we're approved here, it's like like a badge. I
1: think it's possible, but I've seen the other scenario uh, happening more Mm. often that uh, European companies, they are frustrated that it's taking so long and they prefer uh, over markets uh, like the US. Uh, But I do understand that uh, having your product uh, approved uh, in the market that is the strictest is also like kind of like badge of honor, mm-hmm. um, and it can be relevant when you decide to export to places that don't have a food system, uh, like a, a um a legal system that uh, is tackling foods. Like you have some countries that don't have any food regulations, and usually they um accept products that have been checked by a foreign authorities and. Mm. The EU has more weight than something uh, that was approved, for instance, in Brazil.
0: That's interesting. And I think you wanted to um, just before we like move on to a different topic, I think you wanted to mention a story about impossible foods in relation to uh, the European market.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's about the high soy Uh So the thing that is making the burger bleed uh, like blood. Uh, mm. And the thing is, uh, it's made from um, genetically micro organism, um, and so it's GMO. And mm. Impossible Food, they didn't have a lot of uh, trouble to have it approved in the in the in the US or so through the grass system, which is actually a notification system. So you uh, make your own analysis, you prov- uh, provide a lot of data, and you say to the FDA according to our knowledge and the analysis that we conducted, we deem that our product is safe. Do you agree? And if the FDA doesn't have any concern, they will render no questions letter. Uh, whereas in the EU, uh, you can have such products approved either through a novel food application, so a product that has never been, been uh, eaten before, at least in Europe, or you have to... Have it approved through uh, GMO regulation that is taking five years instead, uh, five years to get um, an answer. In comparison to um, the novel food system, you have to wait on the average uh, two years uh, and a half to get an answer. And at the time being, I feel they've filed for um, approval um, like three years ago, and it's still pending. And they just assumed that since they got, it was working in the US, uh, it would be the same, it may be easier in Europe, but it was not the case. So I know a public offer consultancy that they approached and told them that they should change their strategy, but they refused and they went for another one that uh, was willing to take the risk and uh, told them to try. And in the end, uh, yeah, it fired back at them. So...
0: Will they ever get through it or is it are they just are they like um, are, do they not meet the metrics like the standards to be in the EU? Or is it just like taking longer? Like what's what's like um, the hurdle?
1: No, it's just taking longer and most of them is in terms of um, mm. that you have to prove that your food is safe. And oh, yeah. if you don't have enough data, then the European Commission uh, give, um, gives six months uh, more to um, you as an applicant to gather the information. And I think they just assume that uh, it would be fast and easy. Uh, but in in reality, it just turned out uh, otherwise.
0: Hmm. Was there... Um... Were there other companies that did have a fast and easy that they were like oh, okay they were able to do it so they were able to do it or they were like there's no reason that they should believe that it was gonna be easy for them
1: no i think they were uh, poorly advised uh, mm. and uh, i've uh, worked in the food industry for almost three years now and i've seen that these uh, the um, american companies they have this attitude that as long as it's fine in the us it might be in other places so They are just willing to take uh, some risk, but it doesn't work this way. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I feel it's uh, sometimes they minimize the risk too much. And you also have like everything related to alternative protein. I believe that there is too much uh, hype and people that are a little bit over uh, enthusiastic. And they just assume that uh, as experts, since they know so much, and uh, especially uh, VCs, because they are in touch with a lot of uh, food startups and over companies, that they have been, um, they have had the opportunity to discuss with funders uh, over and over again, and they just assume that everybody is doing the same. Uh, but you have uh, company, companies that outperform the others, and some others that are just lagging behind, and. Uh, this is uh this has reached a point um as you may have heard that um plant-based meal um sales have decreased this year because the market is oversaturated uh, companies they most of them they didn't um envision that uh, having a plant-based product wasn't um enough anymore and they had to innovate and be able to deliver cleaner ingredients Um, products in general, like um, having uh, plant-based meat that doesn't contain uh, methyl cellulose, which is actually wood fiber, Uh, it's an additive. It's allowed both in the US and the EU, but people are a bit uh, wary about uh, what kind of, wary of um, uh, the uh, consequences that uh, if uh, it's everywhere, like what kind of um, health issue you may develop as a consumer.
0: I think in the U this might have been like one of those wives tales that's told like when people in the U S there's like these stories of people putting like uh drugs or blades in like Christmas candy or something, not a Halloween candy, which well, is not actually true. This never happened, but it just sounds so good that you like, it keeps being told. But I, I heard that uh Parmesan cheese in the U S used to have sawdust in it. And mm-hmm. uh, they were like, well, it tastes like Parmesan cheese. It's like, I think like, you know, like you're saying, like maybe the bar should be higher. Like, you know, the quality of ingredients should reflect like the taste as well. Cause I mean, if you, if you, if, if, if the taste is all you care about like that's kind of concerning like you would uh you'd want I don't think how many people would enjoy eating sawdust <laughs> or you know like <laughs> cellulose type stuff um, that we're talking about if the if like you're imagining you're biting into a piece of meat and um, the substrate material like isn't the same thing I it's kind of weird like I don't think there's even um, like the research behind it would be different as well I imagine like like the the studies mm-hmm. for how that affects people I don't think anyone's ever done like hey if you eat a bunch of sawdust for a very long pe- period of time like what would that do to people mm-hmm. but and
1: yeah i agree and the thing is like these foods like uh, that type of additives uh they haven't been on the market for a long time so we just don't have uh enough data and also um we, i mean uh it's difficult to assess what is the true impact in the way that uh, maybe you don't have studies conducted or if uh, someone is having a diet um, entirely uh, composed of this, like, uh, do uh, do this person um, have, like, did this person have uh, some type of, uh, I don't know, diabetes issue because they uh, had a very high consumption of this or... It's, it's just so new that uh, it's not because it's approved that it's 100% safe and also 100% safe doesn't exist. You can still get, for instance, food poisoning from a plant-based um, food. I uh, actually <laughs> food poisoned myself a couple of years ago uh, making a green smoothie because the green, mm-hmm. uh, the type of greens that I used, um, you are supposed to cook it and I didn't know. So I blended, uh, blended them raw and uh, I was sick the day after. Uh, hmm. It's just about as well like poor educate um, nutritional uh, nutrition education. Um, I don't know like I grew up in France, but I don't know in the US. But apart from eat your vegetables and fruit uh, five times a day, that's the only thing that I can recall. Uh, we weren't we weren't uh, we weren't really um, taught about what is the impact of eating too much dairy if you are lactose intolerant. Or now the the big problem might be gluten, that you have more and more people that are allergic or intolerant to it. Uh, So it's just, I guess, a matter of um, like your uh, food education highly depends uh, on your uh, environment. So your family, the school, and also if you are interested in learning uh, about it yourself. Um, and it's something that maybe students, once they go to university, they are willing to dive in, but uh, as a kid, that's not something that is uh, highly uh, discussed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was a kid, they had the food pyramid, which is like the grains, then stuff were on top of it. But I think now it's like a, a food spectrum, where it's like a pyramid with a, like a bunch of waves. I I, mm-hmm. I think it's changed. Is all my point there is and uh i mean even in the court i assume you're about my age the i assume the court over the course of our lifetime we've become more aware of like how processed sugar messes with people and Mm -hmm. and uh i don't i think we're aware of it but like as like societally i think like i I don't see much of a trend changing too much like think in terms of what we need to do to like affect it but um when it when it comes to like the like having data for um proving that it's safe in the u.s there's like this weird thing i was reading about where um like when you give the regulatory agencies the data, you just can give them like cherry pick data in the sense of like, you don't have to give like, if we ran a study for like six months and we had like the corpus of information that we gathered from it, um, you don't have to give them that, you just have to give them like the the findings and like the data, um, which is like somewhat problematic because you could find a bunch of reasons why you'd want to, like if you were getting results or saying, hey, this is really healthy for kids eight and under and you started like cherry picking the people who didn't have a problem with it to keep with the study or like remove, uh, to not remove that data and remove the other data. You can like really bias what the data comes out, and then in itself, like then the statistics from that, it's even more bias. You can do stuff with that. But for the EU, do you have to give, like, do you have to give, like, if if I'm a startup looking to do this stuff and I want to, I'm going through this giant gamut, um, do you have to give like all the data, or because that I imagine like that I only ask because the the US is such such a lower bar from that, so I was I just imagine like what are some of the specifics that are different different for the EU. And um, is that like this is just like one question of uh, an example of do you have to give like like what type of data do you have to give and do you have to give all of it or can you select down and stuff like that?
1: Um, so in terms of um, how much information you have to give in comparison uh, to the U.S., it's a little bit higher. <laughs> um, and when you decide not to provide, provide data on a specific topic, you have to justify why. Uh, And if you can demonstrate safety through uh, literature, for instance, or if you have a university that conducted a specific study, um, that um, by analysis, you prove that uh, you, as a company, putting money to demonstrate the same result is not needed. And in the US, it's a notification system. So you do your own analysis as a company, you draw your own conclusion, and even if the FDA uh, think that um, your product might not be safe, you can still put it on the market. Whereas in, um, in the EU, you cannot do this. If the European Commission's uh, Commission said, uh, no, there is no way that you can bypass uh, this decision. Mm-hmm. And in the US, um, for instance, perfect day that uh, he's uh, making uh, animal free milk. So uh, fermentation-derived milk, so they do a biopsy and then they ferment the cell that uh, uh, normally give you the milk. They actually put it on the market before it was assessed by the FDA. And uh, Mm -hmm. Impossible Food, they also failed several times to get a uh, no-questions letter from the FDA. Uh, But meanwhile, um, when they were figuring out uh, how to modify the product in a way that's... would uh, have the approval from the FDA, the product was still on the market. Okay. And it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's a matter of how the system is uh, constructed. And you have other uh, countries, like for instance, Canada has the um, system similar to the EU in the sense that you have to get approval before uh, putting the product on the market. Same uh, for Singapore. And in the Middle East, it's a little bit different because um, these part of the world imports a lot of food, and they tend to accept products uh, if they have been assessed by a foreign uh, aut- uh, by foreign authorities so but they may also require require, uh, extra data or to connect their own, own analysis and the thing is um, since this type of foods they are so new I was, i'm a bit uh, skeptical that you have actually the experts uh, in governmental bodies um, like for instance the codex Alimentarius. so it's um, it's the u.n agency it's um, from the food and agriculture organization of the u.n the fao and the who world health organization that has um, a specific organization that is setting up food standards food safety standards and at the time being uh, you don't have any standards for novel food yet and um i think it was mid 2022 that uh, a delegation, so the Codex Alimentarius uh, Commission, they went to Israel to learn more about the technology and what uh, type of uh, food safety issue, issues that you have to consider for this product. Because for instance, for sale-based uh, meat, uh, you, I think most of the uh, safety uh, hazards, they are related to what type of problems uh, the meat industry, has to be aware when they produce uh, this type of food. And if you can apply the same reasoning, for instance, like uh, when you export meat, or even if you sell it uh, um, like within uh, the same country, you will usually need uh, a lot of documents like a health certificate that is delivered by a vet to prove right. that the the animal that was slaughtered was healthy.
0: Um,
1: and I would, uh, I would uh, say that uh, for me, it's normal that you require this from um, the animal, for the animal uh, from where the biopsy was uh, taken. Uh, And it's also. I'm looking for (laughs) our words. It's also a matter of fair competition because uh, at the end of the day, uh, meat and cell-based meat, they look the same. They serve the same purpose. And I I don't think from a competition point of view, from a competition law point of view, would be fair to give the advantage to the newly developed one while the traditional one, we have to suffer more restriction. You have to... um, build a system that uh, doesn't uh jeopardize the thing that was on the market longer than the new one that just arrived
0: that makes a lot of sense the, uh, i think in the us there's like a like whole foods was having a tier system there's either whole foods or have fda i don't remember where the the rule for this was coming from but basically there's like tiers ter- terms like how you treat your animals like is, are they free range versus like in a little tiny little cells or something and okay. so like the higher the better the quality of life for the animal it was the be- better your rating and I don't I don't remember if it goes like five four three two one or if it was one two three four five but the top percentage of people uh, they actually don't have enough people that could meet that quota so then they started like lower like they would go to like people who were like a tier four if it's like one two three four five or five is the lowest and then you know kind of putting them in the same area as the ones and two so people thought they were buying these free-ranged animals that were having like really healthy happy lives but uh, in fact they're you know it's either being mislabeled or they weren't uh, sta- uh they were or put in the wrong area so that people were actually buying things that were not of that quality if that makes sense um, mm-hmm. and so I always wonder like h- how do you make that fair you know how do you make it so that like kind of what you're saying like if there's if there are people who are doing the work have been doing it for a while and then there's like something new on the market like how do you label it or set it up so that someone who can just who's has a busy life you know has kids or just traveling a lot can just come in and say like oh, okay this is the good stuff and i know it's good because of these things that you know are, are, are good systems put in place um so our uh i guess to like tailor that to the question uh are there are there systems that are, are, are doing it right and um or alternatively if you could like i uh, dream of the ideal system that take care of these issues what would it be
1: it depends if the product uh, does require uh, regulatory approval, like, for instance, mm-hmm. plant-based uh, meat, you don't have to ask the FDA or another uh, other authority to assess your product, because um, in general, they use ingredients that have been on the market for a long time. Um, and then it's just a matter of uh, respecting what is uh, written in the legal system. So wherever in the in the world you will have um, a, a set of uh, basic uh, legal principles, just uh, such as consumer protection. So you make sure that your advertisement uh, advertising doesn't um, mislead uh, people. So you don't say we are the best or uh, this company is not doing as good as us. Then you have to also um, respect the fair competition rules uh, saying that, I mean, naming and shaming is never a good uh, practice because it's going to backfire at the company. Because you cannot say we do better, better than this one, and then you don't prove why. And it's, it's also it's not a it's not fair game if, in order to gain new shares of the market, you just uh, try to discredit what the others are doing out there. Mm. Um, and yeah, so it's a uh, consumer uh, protection and then fair competition. And then lastly, it's uh, what the system uh, allows in general, in terms of food safety. Uh, the way it's working at the international level. Uh, so when a country doesn't have any food standards, they will look at the Codex Alimentarius. So what is written in there? And for food tech, it's a bit complicated at the moment because you don't have data on this. Mm. Um, and, and then the like, countries, they can decide to have stricter rules than the one required by the codex. So the US has rules that I would say are similar to the codex, whether the EU decided to go above, but it was not without consequences because it's also impacted the international trade um, when you had the novel foods regulation applied to uh, traditional foods, uh, for instance, uh, quinoa, or stevia that were consumed in other uh, places and they were allowed uh, in the, the US without any kind of checks. Uh, the EU got a lot of backlash saying that they were putting unnecessary uh, trade barriers uh, for these countries and it was not fair. But in the end, I think they uh, had to pay, in, uh, to pay uh, a fine and they decided to carry on with the current system.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it sounds uh, that happens a lot in America. Where sometimes um, uh, the good way of thinking about it for most people is in America, like you can get a parking ticket, uh, but if you make enough money, a parking ticket is just the cost of parking your car there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's yeah. like it's, it's like there's like rules for everybody, and then there's rules with people with money that can just kind of like oh, okay, so then you just factor in the cost. There was a a, a show called uh, Mr. Robot, I think, where uh, there was a in in the show. I don't know if you've ever seen this. it's, it's pretty good, but. And in the, in the show, there was like a chemical se- spill that gave spoilers for anyone who haven't seen this. I'm sorry. But the, there was a they gave people some cancer and the daughter of one of those people went to fight the company. And uh, eventually, like they had to fight a lot to get any sense of semb- uh, settlement. And then when they were talking to the guy, the guy said the day we did this cost saving measure, we put it into a fund to make money. And the fund has made so much more money than what you're going to co- like uh, charge us in terms of settlement so we can give you what you want like we're still gonna make a lot of money off of this even though like people got cancer and stuff um i wish it wasn't that way though that seems you know it's not fair to anyone and uh is are there better ways other than just like like uh i think finland has like a percentage it's like a percentage of your income so like if you're a high wealth wealth person you guys speeding ticket it'll be higher than if you're um you know not making as much i don't know Uh, how you think about that
1: I heard so. But uh, for the food industry, like uh, I'm thinking about uh, when you have a product that has been deemed uh, non-compliant, you may decide to pay the fine instead of doing the whole marketing strategy again. Uh, for instance, it's uh, very common in the EU that you get product that try to label, um, like uh, companies that try to label label their products as milk, even though it's from mm. a plant-based source. And sometimes they just decide like the fine is like five hundred euros, whereas the marketing campaign costed I don't know five millions. It's mm. uh, for them it's easier just to pay the fine, rather um, like instead of uh, coming up with a new strategy because uh, in terms of uh, cost it doesn't make sense to uh, yeah. change your tactic.
0: Is that, um, is that how you think? it should be or do you think like i imagine it's not good for the consumer if they someone can just pay a fine and then not have to um do a redo when they're not given that type of uh, approval like how how would you see it done or how, how or is uh, it changing to uh, uh counteract that so like a bad thing i guess like the first part is, is that bad it seems like a bad thing and then uh mm-hmm. how would you uh, have it changed or is it changing
1: um i mean for so my example like specifically clean milk I don't think mm-hmm. it's that concerning because uh, most of the consumers, they will know that nowadays uh, you can drink milk that is from uh, an animal-free source. Um, whereas if it's something related to the food safety, uh, it's, it's concerning if you can just get away with a fine without, uh, for instance, recalling the product. That's something mm-hmm. that uh, I've not heard of. Uh, but uh, so I have a master's in um, in food law, and I remember that's one from one of the model we were asked whether or not uh, from a PR point of view it was better to recall the products, um, and the answer was no because the food safety issue wasn't that uh, big of a deal. I think it was in terms of uh, maybe it was for beer. And that the alcohol content was slightly lower than it's supposed to be, uh, whereas um, like in like instead of uh, having the product recall and uh, people consumer, they may have thought that in that case, if you have to recall, it's uh, it's not safe anymore. It was not the case. Um, I think it really depends on the product, but food safety crises uh, are not happening as often as uh, some people may assume and you have system to make sure that uh, if people were injured, uh, they can also be compensated. Uh, I don't know if you heard, uh, I think it was mid uh, 2022 um, daily harvest, had a case with uh, Tara flower. It was for plant-based frozen meal. Um, Tara uh, is a plant that is mostly used uh, for medicine. And I think the company used it for meal And it was not checked by the FDA before. And some people had to have some uh, organs removed because of the toxicity uh, shock. So it really, it really depends like in that case, I think it was really concerning that this product was on the market in the first place. Whereas uh, if it's just a matter of alcohol content, for instance, for the beer uh, case that i mentioned, it's not really concerning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it almost feels like the consumers are the test, like they put it out mm-hmm. there, and it's like, well, oh, we'll see what, it's like we're all like little lab mice, I guess, like if, if nothing happens, then it's like, great, we saved money. If not, yeah, some bad happens, it's like, oh, we have to make some settlements.
1: Yeah, and something like, legally speaking, I was uh, curious to see how it was actually uh, uh settled. It's uh, for the COP27. Uh, I know that good meats, um, so we make um, cell-based um, chicken, they their uh, food was served at a dinner um it was in egypt but i just wonder from a safety point of view uh did the the guests had to sign a waiver a uh, waiver in terms of if they have any type of um, allergic reaction they would not be able to sue the company uh, also, how do you have to um, like for the supply chain? Like, uh, does it has to be frozen, or do you have to take uh, extra pre- precaution when you cook it? Um, uh, I would be very interested in seeing what was uh, written <laughs> in the terms and condition just for people to eat this, because it was not mentioned anywhere in the media, and so. so I believe it's just not to worry people and so most of the time in the media uh, regarding to uh, alternative proteins the emphasis is mostly put on all oh, these type of foods they are uh, going to change the way that we are eating but they never mention what kind of risk we are uh, taking in introducing them into our diets because allergenicity for instance is not really discussed and um, depending on the country the allergens are not going to be the same Uh, in the us i think at the moment you have seven mandatory allergens so you have to put them in bold or uh, uh, write something extra on the labels Um, so and the last one that is going to be um, added is uh, sesame whereas in europe we have about 14. Uh, they are mostly from uh, plant origins like for instance nuts uh wheat and over gluten um and i know that um i don't know what is the reason i think you have a lot of people that are allergic to it but uh, japan has several meats that are considered as allergen like chicken or beef which is not the case in other parts of the world and i believe that they um japan might be a little bit cautious in having cell-based uh meat uh introduced uh in their country just because they know that people that are already already allergic to uh, regular meats may also be allergic to this newly uh uh type of meat. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. It's another layer to think about if you're in that space uh, building something or developing something as a scientist or otherwise. Uh, it it does sound like this is like a, a battlefield being waged where like consumers like it'd be hard to stay up to the, like, work on a nerdy. So like, we get to hear about this or the guests listening are, are nerdy people, uh, who, who are very interested in this, but like the, the consumers like to educate the consumer and then have them, you know, fight these battles doesn't seem like they're really a part of it, like too much other than just like, you know, making smart decisions. But I'm curious in, in that regard, if we think of you as like consumer, how do you go about, you know, it, um, I have a friend who worked in, um, like a taco bell. And from that experience, mm-hmm. they will never eat fast food. Uh, apparently like you know they wouldn't tell me what happened but they, they said like you don't want to know what happens to your food but uh since you're like so aware of everything that goes on how do you navigate just like getting food and eating when you're traveling because I, I think uh, in one of your uh interviews you said like they said that you travel like like 30 countries or something which is it's a little easy when you're in the eu when it's like a new countries like 10 miles to the left but um mm-hmm. how do you how do you just navigate the consumer lifestyle of trying to eat uh well with all these things that like, going on
1: So um, if i just speaking for myself, when I travel, I I will do like a a quick research about what Mm. type of food I can eat because I have a very specific diet. Uh, I was diagnosed with gluten intolerance like eight years ago. So I'm not celiac, so I can still eat it. But if it's in the meal, I might um, get tired or things like that. And um, I have a fully plant-based diet. So if a dish has uh, different uh, variations, uh, like, for instance, dal, and I don't know, for some reason, they would also put uh, milk in it. Uh, we just make sure you know to learn the words, to have uh, a version that is not going to harm me mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because I was so lactose intolerant. Uh, Yeah, just the food culture may give you so many answers Like people are more adventurous. Uh, Like when you look from the outside or when you go to a new place and they are eating things that you have never heard before, you are very cautious. (laughs) Whereas they are, um, these people, the locals, they may be actually surprised that uh, you are scared to eat that type of products. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about uh, insects. Um, mm. It's also part of the alternative proteins, but uh, in the Western world, it's not something that is really consumed, whereas in Asia or even Africa, that's maybe part of, like, it's, it's a sample for, for people, staple, um, and they won't be uh, opposed to trying new forms, like uh, a cricket flower, for instance. Mm. And I feel like uh, education has to be tailored for your audience. Uh, You don't teach the same way to kids um, as that you would do, for instance, to scientists. Um, And this is why it's important to have new um, uh, sources of food that are uh, checked by someone that is competent to give you an answer. And in terms as well of um, how do you cook this in a way that... uh, doesn't harm you um like i remember seeing years ago an article about a restaurant in the u.s making uh sushi with raw chicken and i was even (laughs) surprised that uh, you know they were allowed to do this and
0: that sounds really dangerous yeah
1: yeah yeah like eating raw chicken doesn't sound like a good idea to anyone i guess
0: (laughs) yeah that uh i don't think if i um my wife and I have like this thing with chicken, where if like we end up not eating chicken a lot, because we'll be like, what, "Is there like a little bit of pink in there?" <laughs> like we're so scared because we don't want to get a you know uh, get like laid out for like a week. Uh, people could die from that type of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking it, like one that I've heard of. It, I've heard of bugs like everyone's heard of that. Uh, I think that's like a really interesting one. Uh, but there's one in uh, South America where they eat like guinea pig. Or like, mm-hmm. I think it's like, it's like guinea pig. They eat, it's like chicken to them. yeah, yeah It's like yeah. up in America, like that, that's a pet, you know, like no mm-hmm. one thinks of chickens as pets, even though I had a chicken as a pet growing up. But um that's one of those, like, I don't know if I could eat it.
1: Mm, I wouldn't, but, but uh, I have a good example. Like I know it's a very cliche food, but I did uh, ate it uh, back in the day um, when I was a kid. It's a uh, frog. And I also mm. eat, uh, ate some snails. Uh, mm. And I think I had them both like seven times in my whole life and i think most of the time i just gave it uh, gave in uh it to social pressure because mm. it's part of the culture and it's something that you should try at least once and i feel like people from other uh, countries they may be very shocked uh, uh that uh, people can actually eat that type of food and I had the same experience when I was living in uh, Vietnam that uh, they explained to me that during the war, they had to be creative about uh, uh, what they could actually eat. And they did um, find new uh, parts of animals to eat, like, for instance, pig ear, uh, because when you don't have anything, I mean, when you don't have access to the, the parts you will no- normally eat, just just have to Wait and see uh, if you have other options around you. And uh, it's stayed. It's not something that is highly consumed now, but that's something you get. You can definitely find in restaurants or soups uh, with uh, uh, blood, for instance, like uh, mm-hmm. in a queue. That's something I've seen in Vietnam as well. Or they have something in the Philippines, it's an uh, aborted uh, egg. So half duck, half oh, yeah. egg. And they say, oh, it's a very good source of protein. It's very tasty. But when I saw it, uh, I was, uh, for me, it was too uh, shocking. And uh, I had no <laughs> desire to try. And people around me, they were a bit offended because they thought that's, that's something foreigners they had to experience at least once. But I just told them that for me, it was too extreme.
0: Yeah, good has eyes. I-
1: yeah, yeah. And so eating guinea pigs for me, it's not something that uh, I would consider as food. <laughs> but I, I do understand that uh, I think it's uh, maybe in Bolivia or in Peru that uh, when you are really high in altitude, that uh, if you don't have sources of animal uh, protein, this might be widely accessible. And uh, if you have seen your grandparents eating this, you may just assume that, uh, yeah, why is it weird? It's
0: yeah it's interesting to hear the the like the war giving like different changes to what people eat in America during World War two like they we didn't have there's a lot of rationing and uh, we like apparently they tried they like were tricking people into eating liver more so that they would get the nutrients they need uh, and it was something that just wasn't being used at the time like I think it was mostly thrown away and now like livers used for a lot of stuff so it's really interesting mm-hmm. just to see how like the like rationing or a scarcity kind of makes its own thing where before world war Two, i think eating liver was seen as like if i remember it right it was seen as like like a cheap thing like something you wouldn't want to do like like a tacky mm-hmm. thing and but uh with like this like education program they made it seem like oh it's really cool you can do all these different things and then like mm-hmm. all the the people staying home were like oh i can make all these cool food and then it just kept going when the 60s 70s and uh, even when i was a kid like we had liver for stuff and it's it's a very strong taste uh but it's not the worst mm-hmm. thing in the world but it's interesting to see like there was something there that um, people could eat
1: yeah and also i want to um uh, mention that as well like uh you know i've heard like recently that lobsters uh they were actually a food for the mm-hmm. working class at first and then and somehow prisoners. they managed yeah they managed to rebrand it uh, the whole thing and uh, it became like a sort of a delicacy
0: mm-hmm. there's a, a there's a story of a guy in maine that i think he was getting his last meal before he was gonna be killed for in prison for right, once again it could be was like one of the stories but uh they were gonna feed him lobster and he said this is cruel and unusual punishment i would never eat something so cheap and he was like mad about it like he would be He was <laughs> being fed lobster so uh um well w- in terms of um so there's labeling that people see just like i just like touch on some uh <laughs> food topics so we mm-hmm. can just like share stories um the so people can see food labels but then um There's an element like trusting the system that made the food labels and made it fair, like which is to some extent like we're talking like the U.S. is kind of weird and like maybe you should be a little bit more watchy in terms of like if you're Mm -hmm. gonna eat something that's labeled a certain way. There's um there's a I think if I don't know I think this was the case I don't know if this is the case anymore but it you can have beef that's made in America as like the label even though it's actually beef that's been shipped up from Argentina and it's undercutting the ranchers and. America, which actually like they're very angry about this but it's labeled as made in america so we have mm-hmm. the labels that you that you're supposed to trust but then the system itself is not something that you should trust but you know or there's like things like this where like people are able to like like hey, it came in and then it was processed here so it's still made in america um mm-hmm. how do you i guess how do you like watch the watchman like is there do we like open source the system a little bit more so that people can see like hey here's the data and stuff i don't know if you already can do this if you're just like there's a repository somewhere it's like this like Impossible Food is bringing out something, and you were like looking at their data or something. But like, how do you, um, how do we go about like like trusting the people building the systems when there are like these examples of uh mm-hmm. like, you know, like what I just said with like the uh, meat packing. Um.
1: So for me, I know actually where the loopholes are. So mm. uh, <laughs> I work with a lot of um, startups, and sometimes, uh, like from a scientific point of view, their reasoning like does make sense. Uh, But from Mm. a legal point of view, I think it's a bit of a risky scenario. Uh, And to come back to the uh, meatpacking thing, it's about the country of origin uh, rule. Like either you have, for instance, for meat, um, it would be logical that uh, if uh, the animal was born and raised in one place, but like slaughtered in another one, that you have the first place as the place of origin. But the thing is, uh, the last uh, step is the most significant one because you have to slaughter the animal. It was an mm-hmm. according to uh, U.S. rules. And so you can put uh, uh, as uh, the place of origin, country of origin, the U.S. Uh, and I've recently seen um, an example um in a French supermarket about Wagyu beef. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in Japanese Wagyu means Japanese, but just a way of preparing this uh, type of uh, beef. And uh, looking uh, at the label, it was actually from Australia. Mm. And it's just the way the system is built. Uh, Like you may think as a consumer, if it's country of origin, uh, the animal spends uh, its entire life there. And it doesn't make sense if he was slaughtered in another one, doesn't impact the country of origin as a whole. But the system gives you other uh, opportunities as a company to uh, slaughter the animal in the place that has a better reputation. Mm. And I think this is why um, people are frustrating and they feel that the system is uh, not reliable, with just the way it was uh, built. And sometimes it's, uh, it depends as well, like who wrote uh, the regulation. Uh, you see that the dairy and the meat uh, industry, they receive a lot of subsidies because most of the MPs were actually from rural backgrounds or they did receive some funds from uh, from um, uh, lobbies or trade association, And uh, in turn, they were asked to have a system that is uh, defending uh, this um this industry's uh, interest, and otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get uh, the money. Hmm. So, and this is why you have some lobbies that now, specifically for the the plant-based sector, um, they are trying to have rules that are more uh, lenient to the plant-based sector because it's suffering too too many restrictions. Um but the thing is like uh, in parliaments, anywhere in the world, I don't think you have a ma- majority, for instance of vegetarian. Uh, it's uh, it's very unlikely, but at least they are trying. And I think it's always it depends on how you bring the topic. If you are explaining people the whole spectrum of issue, instead of focusing on one that is the, the hot topic at the moment, people get a better understanding, but I feel most of the debates are driven by emotions um instead of having um some uh, arguments based on science and uh, logical reasoning
0: mm-hmm. there's a so in the midwest there are people if you talk about mid uh automate uh autonomous cars to certain people they'll mm-hmm. start yelling at you like well you're not a good driver you need the autonomy. It's like <laughs> that's not the issue like we come down like you can keep your pickup truck it's going to be fine um so for for the the laws are is Are they trying, is the movement to incorporate plant-based or alt-protein into the existing, like what meat is, like that type of regulatory space? Or do you see the trend more like they're trying to make like a new regulatory system process for that specific type of uh, protein?
1: So, yeah, at the moment, the two scenarios are happening. So the first one, Mm. like uh, the plant-based products, they try to enter categories that were strictly reserved for animal-based product. I don't think it's a good solution uh, because you have to change the rules. Um, it's better to have a system that was specifically built for these uh, products because you agree with your partners uh, through trade associations and lobbies what is the most important for uh, your industry um, Like instead of creating uh, complying with rules that don't necessarily make sense. Like for me, it would be absurd to have a plant-based meat uh, company having to, uh, for for instance, have similar documents as uh, health certificates required for an animal that was slaughtered. Yes, the plant-based meat is going to replace meat from animal origin, but for me, it's it's irrelevant whether or not you get this type of document because it's not needed. Plants, they don't need to have like a health certificate telling uh, the manufacturer that uh, soil was cultured in the way that is similar to beef. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. And you see that, uh, um, like, if uh, this type of um, uh, movement is happening for cell-based meat, which is also another alternative protein sources. Uh, that the, they want to have a system that is specifically designed for that type of meat, uh, instead of having cell-based meat complying with uh, traditional meat uh, rules, because they are not, At the end of the day, it's the same. Like the end product is the same, but the way it was manufactured is totally different. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have uh, a fermentation process to have a biopsy to make real meat so we have to be logical. At some point, that system does reflect what are the advantages and the disadvantages of a certain production method. Um, and if you are just trying so desperately to fit your product into a category that is not suitable for it, um, that people that are going to be consumers they are going to be even more confused, and you have um inflated uh, claims, uh, and over like uh, really poorly designed debates where people, instead of having a conversation where you get to learn about the point of view of the other party, they just keep on arguing on things that are don't make any sense. Uh, and no one is willing to back down, no one is willing to concede, and no one is willing to listen. And you mm-hmm. just hear people running around like a headless chicken.
0: Yeah. Uh, I-, I see what you mean. I think you mentioned this earlier in the conversation with this idea that if you... If you having if you have incumbents who are having to change their you know potentially their regular like their, uh, how they get regulatory approved um mm-hmm. just for like new incumbents that have an entirely different process like it- it's a bit unfair on both people because you have like one that's been specialized over years to work under that system and then you have a new system being put in there then they're gonna have to like jump potentially through those hoops so that's like mm-hmm. added money and cost that like you know in america for instance the like the dairy industry they have to like dump a lot of the milk because they're just like too efficient to like keep the cost at a certain level. They have to like do that. That happened a lot in World mm-hmm. War Two as well. Like they were like burning some of the, some of the uh, foodstuffs because they were just overproducing. Um, mm-hmm. So like that's that's a different like the margins are really low. Like having to like do an extra thing, I think would like cause a lot of people ir- very irritation, a lot of irritation. Um, mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like the better model would be to just have like an entire new uh, system for the new people. So then you can have it really custom to them versus like half cu- half applicable to the old people uh incumbent industries and then half to the new it doesn't work for either of them it seems like uh, from what i'm you know what i'm thinking is that like a new one would work best but i don't know if, like maybe mm-hmm. that's like even more of a hurdle to get like a whole new system i don't know if they like that's even worse than trying to like have half and half in terms of like just like getting it through uh the law processes
1: yeah that was very uh nicely put and you see the same uh happening for instance uh for Uh, certification bodies that have to certify uh, a factory that is producing a specific uh, type of uh, food, that they will have to come up with ways to check that uh, uh, cell-based meats has uh, food standards that are high enough, uh, similar to the one that are put in place for traditional meat. And it just, I feel as well, like I see a lot of uh, funders and other companies that are really eager to change the system but sometimes i feel that i really want to go to the market as fast as possible but from a public uh, uh from a reputation uh, point of view might not be the best strategy because if you fail people they are going to are not going to trust you anymore and then they're going to say that if one company is able to uh, cause that type of scandals like what are the odds that another one is going to do the same you have to pause and reflect and have a well-thought strategy ahead. Um, So, yeah, going to the market first is not the best strategy. You have to make sure that you have uh, run uh, every type of scenarios in your head just to make sure that uh, you were able to come up with a a solution whenever a problem arises. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, so we just have to wait and see. And the second thing is like... um, you have to be careful not to put your market uh, too early uh, on the market, your product on the market not too early. But you also not have to be constrained and wait until your product is 100% perfect because perfection doesn't exist. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just a matter of uh, uh, catering to a specific public that you didn't envision when you decided to create uh, a certain type of food and just to see what uh, resonates the most with consumers. Um, Like for instance, like for plant-based products, like uh, some companies, they want to be the cleanest, the more environmental friendly and so so on. But if you tap into a new uh, ingredients, then it's highly uh, unlikely that enough R&D was invested by other companies in it uh, before. So it's, uh, for instance, people that decide to dish uh, soy uh, as a protein source because they say it's uh, all type of soy is related to uh, the deforestation of the rainforest, which is not true <laughs> because you have soy, for instance, grown in Europe. Uh, and they decide to go for chickpea, but then like uh, chickpea doesn't have the same functional uh, proper, uh, properties. So yeah, you decide not to use soy, but then chickpea is not going to answer all your requirements. Mm-hmm.
0: The uh, I think this I think my question might be a, a mild tangent, but I'm curious, we've talked a lot about the regulatory bodies being kind of like a hurdle to, to um, be considered Or mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's more of a lengthy thing that then people realize like you're saying, I think in EU, you were saying about three to five years, you should think of it versus in the in the US. It, it, I guess it's like as soon as <laughs> you uh, find a market for it. Um, mm-hmm. The so people come to you to help navigate that so that in three years time they don't waste their time so then um, are there is the regulatory stand uh, regulatory environment right now stable enough where like things don't really change over three to like the next three or five years so that um, like you help them once and then they're good to go or is it like things change a lot and you have to help like you touch base a lot to like really help them navigate the different things and then related are there opportunities with the regulatory bodies going on right now, the regulation going on right now, um, that startups could use to to leverage to do a better job? You know, like to to use as a like an opportunity to 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 do to do well to have an ad- advantage over other people. If that makes sense. So it's a two-part question, mm-hmm. but and maybe I should have just broken up and, <laughs> and waited for the second part. But uh,
1: it just depends. Like I think there is this um, misconception that uh, uh, legal rules they change all the time and it's not Hmm. true because you have to have uh, um, what we call in law, it's uh, legal certainty that it's not possible that uh, you have to expect from companies that they are uh, up and ready uh, every time that uh, the rules are changing. And it also depends, uh, like you have a transition period, if you file in um, a dossier for approval under a certain law uh, usually you have to conduct like authorities they will keep on doing the analysis according to these rules uh regardless whether or not a new law was enforced in the meantime because i mean otherwise it's a waste of resources time money and so on just to uh for the company that invested a lot of time and effort to have a dossier that was compliant with the rules at the time but also for authorities that you have that have to train their employees uh, to um, be able to perform a new in- uh, assessment that is not like the one they were used to and i feel as well like uh, there is certain markets with untapped uh, with untapped potential like the gulf countries because everything is happening uh, behind closed doors at the moment, because you do have regulations in place, but sometimes they're not even available in Arabic, and you have to be introduced uh, by other people to authorities and discuss with them what type of uh, information they may need to have your the, the product approved uh, there. So it's not changing as fast, as we may expect. And I feel as well that what you see in the media is most of the time, the spotlight is put on something very specific that does demonstrate that the product is safe, but they do ignore it of everything else that may uh, pose a problem later on. So mm-hmm. this is why you cannot have, uh, you cannot know everything. Uh, and I feel like um, only a small part is disclosed and you have also had to take into consideration that some information they will never be pub- public because they are uh, they fall um, under the in the category of uh, trade secrets like for instance the uh, coca cola recipe is secret <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not something that they have to discuss to authorities and they are keeping it um, behind closed door because they know that uh, as soon as someone can figure out or uh, really, something similar is going to be detrimental to their brand, brand overall, uh, and you have also a lot of technologies used for food tech and uh, alternative proteins that are patented. So it's also another inconvenience I feel for the public that you don't have enough disclosure but at the same time as a company you don't want to invest so much money to have something public in the end because you know that all companies will take advantage of uh, what you have been able to produce uh, for their uh, needs and you are not going to be compensated so the system is changing but it's going to be it's going to be it's going to take some time and so yeah so i more in favor of a system that is uh, strictest is the strictest, like the EU, but I also understand the frustration uh, for companies saying that uh, it mm. doesn't support innovation, and this is why they run away to the markets. Like, for instance, they run away to Singapore, but Singapore is only 6 million inhabitants, so it's a very small market, and Singapore is part of a, a broader um, governmental or intergovernmental governmental uh, organization, which is ASEAN. so the Asian... Uh, Asian countries from uh, Southeast Asia, uh, but if you have your product approved by Singapore, it doesn't mean that you can sell it in Thailand, for instance. Whereas mm. in Europe, if uh, since the final decision is given by the European Commission's, all the twenty-seven member states, they cannot ban your product because it was uh, assessed, assessed at the at the highest level. So mm. I think it just depends like uh, what kind of uh, scientific breakthrough we'll notice in the upcoming years and how these uh breakthroughs they will be able to reshape the system is if needed
0: that makes a lot of sense the uh is um so if i'm understanding it right you can't like go to france and get it approved there and then um like you have to like go like top down you have to go through the eu to france if that makes sense to like get something out
1: okay Mm -hmm. And if you try to have it approved only in France, at like French uh, authorities, they will tell you that you have to apply both. But usually, mm. they do it uh, automatically. And for like from an economic uh, point of view, it's also way more advantageous to have the decision taken uh, at the highest level instead of uh, having to go to each and every member state to have it approved.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like that's a big ad- advantage: the fact that you can go. In the EU, even though it's a, a bit slower in terms of time, um, mm-hmm. it sounds like a big advantage. Is like you hit one, you hit, you know, t- 27. And I think there's a bunch of new ones to be uh, joined. I think Finland and one of the Nordic countries, I think, is enjoying uh, thinking about joining the EU. So it's like constantly, it seems like it's every now and again, it grows a little bit um, to, yeah. to Russia's chagrin. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge it's, advantage.
1: It's uh, So you have the EU and then you have the EFTA, uh, so European Free Trade Agreements Association. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Liechtenstein. It's between Australia, o- Australia, uh, Austria, and uh, Switzerland. It's a tiny country, about thirty-five uh, thousand inhabitants. Then you have uh, Switzerland, and then Norway. Uh, Norway uh, is not part of the EU. Maybe they will join, but uh, funny enough, they apply almost word for word uh, the EU regulations. Hmm. Uh, And also with this uh, organization, so the EFTA, once you have a novel Food approved in EU, uh, they recognize it as suitable for their markets and you don't need to have them assess the product another time. So that's something Hmm. very convenient. You have a lot of um, hidden tricks, if I may say, that uh, you uh can find in free trade agreements uh between countries and uh then you realize that uh oh this this is nice because of uh the existence of uh um legal uh of uh, of the existence of contract you have uh the possibility to uh save uh, time and money
0: yeah. and for the population of that region like all those different uh countries it, i i think it's like 500 500- 500 million I I'm just like on the back of my head just yeah yeah, okay so like that's that's a massive market where if you win one battle it seems like you win a lot of them Um, Mm -hmm. I mean America just seems like it's uh, quick and easier but the EU market it sounds like especially if you have someone like yourself who knows how to navigate it like there's a a very interesting opportunity there is there um, are there other ones like that Uh, so you win one you win a bunch of countries are there other advantages to being in that market
1: uh, it's the only one so far. I think uh, the other region that may uh, achieve that someday would be ASEAN, uh, But I don't think it's uh, going to be anytime soon. Uh, mm. And so in North America, um, I think it's highly unlikely because of languages, uh, language differences uh, like um, NAFTA. With uh, like for Canada, you have to have information written both in French and English, and then for Mexico, you have uh, have you have to have them written in Spanish, and hmm. it's in the U.S. it's just uh, it depends if also for a specific matter uh, whether the FDA or uh, state authorities uh are responsible. If if the SDA, then you are lucky. And if it's not, then you have to be wary of any uh modification that uh, you have to be aware of.
0: Do you uh do you typically just for your work, do you do do you work with more scientists like startups? Most of the startups I see are usually scientists that are translating something? Or are you more in like the like established business helping them navigate like new products? Um uh,
1: both so I, I mostly have startups um uh, but also worked with uh, vc vcs and for them it's a very like a business approach like how can you scale this like uh, is it does it make sense to uh, use this ingredient instead of another one uh where can we maximize our profits and so on uh but uh most, I prefer actually um, to work with scientists because if there is any type of uh, food safety uh, consideration to address they will be able to tell me right away whereas uh, business people, they are not concerned about the same things and that's something mm-hmm. that can be overlooked and funny enough um, both in uh, big companies and in small ones, regulatory always put uh, um, as the last step, which is a massive mistake, because they just assume that as as long as they were able to develop a product uh, that satisfied their requirements, they don't see why you shouldn't be uh, allowed, uh, legally speaking. And mm. you have, I would um, advise companies, whether they are small, medium, or big, to always have regulatory specialists uh, involved at the very beginning of each project, because. Um, uh, you uh can uh, work out with several scenarios, and just uh have different point of views that need to be considered uh in early stages.
0: Do you um, how do you like find uh like ecosystems like a New Harvest or like a Boston, like uh, science like PhD science programs? Like, how do you go about? It sounds like the, a really great advantage you have is that if you get there early enough you you can really uh, change the nature in terms of whether or not they're gonna be successful so then if, mm-hmm. if that's a and if they're successful then you know people get better food which is really important um, mm-hmm. how do you how do you uh, capitalize on that concept do you like I'm, I'm just thinking like do you could just like find a bunch of VCs and then talk to them when they're in that stage but there's like an element of like they're already talking to VCs that are kind of like locked into a system of doing things like a lot mm-hmm. of people when they um a lot of scientists in particular like they uh that i know like they'll talk to a vc and they, they they're afraid to change their way of going about things because then they'll think oh i'm signaling to the vc i don't know what i'm doing it's like i don't know I, if i was a vc and you changed your mind after what what I, I told you something that's good or i had an advisor tell you something that's good like i would think higher of you <laughs> versus like you're just a stubborn mm-hmm. person um but so how do you how do you get yourself there so that you can help uh, them, if that makes sense
1: so I think it's like mostly through, for me, it's mostly through uh, referrals. Like yeah. uh, I worked with one client that knows another one that need help with something very specific. Um, and you see that uh, VCs, um, like I've seen um, a couple of them having people from a science background, but it's not always guaranteed. And in that case, it's like an extra indication that uh, a throughout check, Uh, was uh, made early on. Uh, But you see that the beauty in in this type of organization is that you have people from different educational backgrounds uh, and they uh, view a topic from different uh, angles and then you can compromise. Um, And you see when you have companies that even though they already might have received some funding, the way they talk in interviews, or like the um, when you read some stuff about them, that sometimes you can sense that something that was not really addressed. Because the way they talk about it, either they uh, consider it's really important and it's not, or the other way around that they consider that something technical is just like a minor detail that can be addressed later on. And, um, this is when I uh, decide to reach out uh, to them just making sure that they conducted uh, a due diligence process and most of the time it's not the case and I think the the legal system might be frightening for many of them because since they I think they would assume that uh, since uh, food law is like it's a legal topic it's it's a science it's a was built on science, it would be logical that you don't have a lot of differences between what is written in the law and how is it uh, working from a science point of view. But it's just not the case. And uh, the law is always lagging behind um, scientific uh, advancements. And you have to be aware that um, you need uh, to have a system reform because it was outdated and it only reflects the reality that... uh, Was happening five years or ten years ago, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah, and things are really advancing. So um, it's kind of a detriment at the same time that it isn't uh, rapidly, I mean, you know, uh, changing. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, is there uh, yeah? Go ahead. I'm sorry. uh,
1: It's it's something that you see also in different type of industries, like for instance, like taxes, like uh, financial uh, topics, like uh, cryptos. Uh, what type of assets uh, it is for a country in comparison to another one. That's something that is not settled yet. And the more knowledge we have about a certain topic and uh, the more likely uh, um, an updated system is going to be replaced, but one that does reflect the needs and the concerns of a specific uh, topic. So Mm -hmm. it's just like we have to wait and see. It's not possible to um uh, plan everything in advance because we just don't know and sense. we have um, to work with what we have and uh, just see if it's suitable and if it's not what kind of uh, actions uh, authorities they need to take to better the system as a whole
0: so if there's a scientist or someone's going to be working in this area and they want to learn more like a great resource is you know check out your website but um where do you go to stay up to date on these things are there books that you read that you think are good for people to check out? Are there websites that you you know, you know have like either Google Scholar Alerts for or something?
1: Um, I read a lot of scientific articles uh, that does sometimes talk a little bit about regulations. Uh, most of the time they are written by scientists. And I see that the understanding of re- legal rules is pretty poor. And the thing is like, as long as you understand how the system works, uh, then like for me, I know uh, where to look for. Um, Like, for instance, in the EU, like uh, when I'm asked about a specific country, what I will do is check uh, first if there is a European regulation on this topic. Uh, If not, it means that there is an opening for national regulations. If you have nothing at the national uh, level, then I will go to trade associations or private over private standards. And it's mostly uh, then... um, about uh, legal cases that took place in the past, or if you want to emulate the strategy from a competitor competitor to see if you have information up there if they didn't enter any um, kind of uh, legal hurdles. Um, So just most i think the simplest advice i would give to people is just check if in their country there there is a food safety um act or dedicated regulation and if not to see if the country in question applies a codex alimentarius rules and that's something that you will find on the food safety um authorities website um or i don't know sometime trade for a specific matter like for instance, mm-hmm. like for medicine, it's uh, the um, uh, agency res- uh, responsible for uh, health that would be the most likely to regulate this, and um, they have usually a tab with uh, uh, legal uh, instruments that they use. And mm-hmm. as consumer, that you can check that some matters that are uh, tackled by authorities or not. Uh, but I wished I had a simple answer but it's just um um the way the system was structured whether or not you get can get a broad understanding of how is it uh how you can uh, navigate uh, the system as a company uh but it's the same for someone that would like to uh, learn about I don't know how the science is working for a specific topic uh you get the 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 main um the main areas that are included in this topic, but if you want something very specific, that's something you have to study. And it did took me a little bit of time to um, understand how the system was built and you have so many loopholes uh, as well. So it's just some of a matter of uh, being curious. And the funny thing about food law is like most of the uh, professionals that apply them, they are not actually lawyers, they are uh, scientists. But it can mm-hmm. also be a drawback because the way you may interpret things uh, as a scientist doesn't guarantee that your interpretation is the one that was uh, adopted by um, uh, courts or trib- tribunals, uh, for instance. So it's just that's- about being curious and to see like what are you interested in? And uh if uh you um got a certain conclusion that you check with someone that is able to tell you if your reasoning was good or if you need if you missed a step, for instance.
0: Are there cases that as you're reading through them, like going through this process yourself that I don't know, make you laugh or something. So I didn't think law could be funny, but then I was watching this documentary about uh Pepsi not giving someone a jet and it was all like the case <laughs> law itself was actually really cool. And I was like, Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Like if I was just like found that and I saw a judge like make this kind type of comments, I think it'd be funny. She was trying to define what comedy was as well. So it's like kind of funny, uh, given the context. But are, when you're reading these things, is there never like something that just I don't know, like takes you back, makes you laugh at all. Or like some of that, like, it's like, oh, this is kind of a weird way that they would do something.
1: Yes, I think sometimes, I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie, like uh, legal decisions, they are not really the funniest thing to read. (laughs) <laughs> but sometimes you have you have a judge that has, has like a specific type of humor humor that may resonate with you. And mm-hmm. um, like sometimes the argumentations of uh, one of the parties like uh, so poorly done that uh, you see how absurd the whole uh, trial is. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can have a good laugh. But uh, in terms of food safety, most of the time it's either um, related to labeling or like food fraud. Uh, mm-hmm. But you have also like funny decision, uh, for instance, with regard to um, the champagne. I don't know if you know, but uh, there is a, a champagne producer association that's in the food industry, if you include also the beverage industry, is the one that lit- litigates the most. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, they did sue uh, high luxury brand because they wanted to call a perfume champagne. And then they say, uh, they argue that uh, people that seek out champagne they seek out something to drink not to use as a perfume so Mm. yeah it just depends on what type of uh, goods Um, but I feel like uh, with everything happening it's gonna be uh, yeah we're gonna have some good loves and I've recently saw something for instance in Singapore that they wanted to turn urine into beer Uh, I'm not sure (laughs) where is the um, appeal to this but uh, yeah Mm -hmm. it's not allowed yet so I don't know like in terms of uh, food waste or waste in general, it might be appealing to some people, but I don't think it has like a, a good strategy in terms of uh, scaling up in the future. But uh, yeah, you know, I guess uh, when you think that you have seen everything, there is always something funny happening out there. It's like, okay, <laughs> some people are actually thinking about this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the urine one does not go forward. <laughs> that, sounds that sounds really weird. Uh, I know we're coming to the end. Um, is there what do you, is there? What's your ambition for yourself for like 2023, which is like you know five days from now and uh, beyond? Is there like uh, do you have, are you working towards something?
1: Um, so what I'm working on is like I would like to uh, deliver a, a legal uh, course, like on food law and novel food for lawyers like I want to make uh accessible this uh field that is uh, very daunting but uh, as soon as you understand the specificities of the topic it's not that difficult to navigate by yourself uh and I've worked with a lot of people both scientists business people and it's always the same questions so I've been working on this uh the past month and I'm hoping to release it uh, uh, maybe Q two
0: of next year. Is um, and this the best way to find it is on your website. Is there like a newsletter you do or anything for people to stay up to date, or like how can people? I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that are listening. And they're like, oh, that's really cool. I want to check that out. So, <laughs>
1: um, so it would be mostly on my website. So it's okay. um uh, veganfoodlaw.com. uh, but I'm also thinking about uh, maybe launching a newsletter. But uh, mm. I prefer to take it step by step because uh, I do everything by myself and yeah. I may onboard people when I feel the need to, uh, but would be mostly, um, like everything that I do would be mostly addressed either on my, on my website or on LinkedIn. Like, uh, okay. I also got in touch with you through LinkedIn. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful place to just to get to know, uh, what people are doing up there.
0: Yeah. And your LinkedIn was really nice too. Cause you're like very like, sometimes people are just like, here's my profile, but you're actually like, hey, if you know, when you message me, just let me know what you want to talk about. Like, there, I get a lot of uh, inbound and uh, sometimes people are just like, they just send a connection request. It's like, well, I don't know you, <laughs> like, you know, for, for all I know, you're just trying to get my contact information so you can spam me, you know, or something. I don't know. But uh, so, all right. Then, uh, is there anything you want to add on that? Sorry.
1: Uh, no, I think it's just like uh, uh, a thought on the networking that, you know, it's uh, it's not a one-way street that uh, if you like to know what someone is doing, you also have to, you know, share a little bit about yourself. And that's something that I've started doing a long time ago and it's actually how I got most of my previous job. It was just uh, getting to know people and just being curious about what they were doing. And the way you approach people will actually impact how um they will reply to you or if they ever get if they ever reply to you. Just uh, I try to approach things with an open heart. Uh, yeah. that uh, if you are willing to get to know people, people are so willing to get to know you, and. Uh, you are doing an amazing job to showcase uh, new things uh, to people through your podcast and uh, i thought maybe something like some of your listeners or even yourself you had some question and uh, i know that uh, legal learning like teaching yourself legal things might not be that exciting but if you get someone that uh, has been working in that field and is able to Tackle the topic in an unconventional way or more practical way, then you can see the value uh, mm-hmm. of what a conversation can bring to people.
0: Yeah, this is a lot of fun. The uh, I, I don't think legal stuff is boring, especially because like uh, the I mean it, it it's life and death. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was a time where the U.S. didn't have the FDA, and it was like the literal snake oil salesmen <laughs> there, there, there used to be salesmen who would sell you snake oil. <laughs> and it would say, like, this is going to give you hair and stuff. Like, So, like, this stuff is so important. Um, so I really do appreciate you coming on this. Sh- Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcast can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. That's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.